I'm, that video just brings back so many memories, you know, of, of my own childhood where I used to wear a dress and cowboy boots. And I just, um, but really glad you guys are here. We're doing a series called Love Where You Live. I do want to correct something um, Jordan said. I, I don't want anybody to, to, to bring a pin, one of those orange pins we have, into like, he said I want it to be like uh, about a birth. I just want it to be in the delivery room. Like afterwards, everybody's standing there. That just is a little too graphic for me. So if you're going to have a kid, great. We'll just put them after everything's kind of happened. Wrap them up in a little burrito blanket thing and hold them. That's fine. Okay, glad that we're clear on that. Um, really glad that you guys are here. I've loved um, some of the stories I'm hearing about the series of loving where you live. I mean, basically the idea is this, that we believe as we've been talking about it throughout the series that God might have actually placed us somewhere, wherever we live, wherever we might work, whatever it is, for a particular purpose. That God might have us there, not just simply to kind of live there, but that really to put love into action there, to love actually where we live, to unleash or to put into practice love. And so God has placed us for a purpose. We talked a little bit about what that looked like. We talked about the Harvest Carnival, it was so fun. You know, one of the things, you know, we get to do is, I was just telling someone, uh, it was actually someone last night who I was talking to, who goes, you know, I go to Mariners and I love that Harvest Carnival thing. I go, you know, well, what was so cool about it? He goes, I just love that it was us helping a school. Like, he goes, what did, he goes, what did our church get from that? And I go, well, I don't know, people got to volunteer. They got a cool event. And he goes, yeah, but you, he goes, what did all that money go? I go, well, we, we just wanted to partner with the school. So the school was like, he, he's like, that's what you guys do with that? I'm like, yeah, we believe in being in our neighborhood and loving where we live. And so we got to do it. And you guys, it was so fun to be a part of it. I was walking around. I saw a person um, not too long ago just walking my dog uh, Saturday was Friday, and I, I walk my dog, and there's a, there's a person who has a sign in their yard that just says, we're, we're, they said, uh, they said, hot dog fest or something like that, the Halloween-y roast, I think is what it was more appropriate, but they're going to have like free hot dogs for everybody come by from the neighborhood from five o'clock on, we're making hot dogs, and who wants to come? It was like, we're just doing that. I thought, this person gets it. This, gets, this person gets the idea of loving where we live. I mean, Halloween's coming up. People are like, what do we do? You know, how are we supposed to do stuff? And just, there's a great example. We're going to have food for people and put it out there and see what happens. So there's been some great stuff. As we've been talking throughout this series, there's been kind of one theme verse we've been talking about. It's kind of driving this idea. This is from Jeremiah 29. It says this. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. God's people are in exile. They are in, you know, kind of at the hands of the bullies of the ancient Near East, the Babylonians, and they are not sure how to live. And so rather than fighting and, you know, fight, causing a big revolution, God says just Pray to the Lord for the city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so that's the heart behind love where you live. That we would be people who live in and among the world, which has sometimes got an antagonism to Christians, got an antagonism to the church. You know, I talked to one guy who recently decided he wanted to trust Jesus. He goes, it took me a long time. He goes, I, I, I thought Jesus was pretty cool, but I, I really did not like the church people that went with them. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm offended or glad for you. But he goes, I, 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 you know, really, God's really done some great stuff. And I go, we get that. You know, the church is someone who gets to live out this idea of being for the city and being in the neighborhood for people. And so we're wrestling with that idea. It's been very, very cool. I'm really excited about what we got today and then next week. Oh, I should tell you this. Next week, by the way, just to give you a heads up, it's like one of my favorite weeks we get to have in the entire year. We'll kind of tip our hat a little bit to what's coming, tip our hand a little bit to what's coming in uh, between, you know, sort of that holiday season, November, Christmas stuff. But it is one of the critical moments we get to talk about some of the DNA in our church. It's some of the most challenging and most beautiful stuff. Um, I am so excited for you guys to come and hear that next week. If you're here with us, it will be so great. Bring a friend. It will be so cool. One of the things just you'll hear, it's like part of the DNA of our own church. So be here next week as we talk about Outreach Weekend. It will be awesome. All right, let's get into today. Let's pray together and we'll get into it. Jesus, we are um, grateful people. We have a number of reasons to, to, be great, to be grateful and to experience joy. Father, not in the sense that everything is perfect, 
And not that we're constantly living in sort of a blissful happiness, but that there's reasons to be grateful. We can point to the friendships that we have and the people that are around us, the people that care about us. We can be grateful that no matter whatever might, we might have done in our past, whatever things are plaguing us presently, that you still welcome us with open arms and that you long to see us moving toward you. There are many reasons in here to celebrate and to have joy. And there are so many of us in here who know the sting of isolation and loneliness. We have felt it in the past. We're living with the fear of it right now. So Jesus, today, as we consider what it might look like to move toward you, might you, might you meet us in our fear of isolation or our experience of isolation that we might be moved from isolation to celebration. So Lord, for just a moment as we continue on in this series, we pause. We have lots of noise in our lives. There's so much that's trying to get our attention. So for just a moment, we just hold still. We just listen in the silence for you to speak to us, however it is that you do that. Father, would you move at us in such a way that we might know that we do not have to be alone from you. And that we have a particular sensitivity to those around us who are feeling the loneliness and isolation of this life. Father, whether it's in song or in scripture or in prayer or in being around other people that would care for us, Father, might you move toward us in our own hidden isolation, whatever it might look like, and move us to a place where we might find joy and celebration. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, it is good to be with you guys, and I'm excited about today. I, we're going to, um, if you want to pull out your bulletin, you saw that Jordan already mentioned it before, there's like a little, you know, cool Mad Libs kind of getting your information thing for our data stuff. But I, um, I also want to, there's an outline in there if you want to follow along. Everything you'll need will be on that outline as well as on the screen. You can take a look at that. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be kind of, you know, working our way through Exodus and also through uh, in John chapter 4 as we'll kind of land. So you can take a look there. And while you're kind of getting set up, let me ask you this question just... You know, I, I realized recently, I, I've, I've always thought of myself, well, I'll ask it this way. Have you ever had the experience of being made fun of for your accent? And some of you are like, yeah, you know, I have. You know, I, I, English is a second language, things like that. Yeah, so some people from the South, perhaps, have, have raised their hand too. I, I, I always thought, and as all people do who ever get made fun of for having an accent, that I don't have an accent. Everybody's like, I don't have an accent. Everybody else does. Everybody else sounds weird. I sound like a normal speaking person. Everybody else sounds bizarre. I sound like the people on TV. I watch the news. I sound like them. That's me, right? Now, I remember this one time I'm in um, Mexico with a bunch of high school students. And I, I'm fully convinced I have no accent. I grew up in California. There's, it's an accentless state. I just know that, okay? And I'm, we're in Mexico and we're, we're doing this like, kind of event, which anytime there's like a dead moment and whatever you're doing in Mexico or anywhere in Latin America, really, you kind of just go, um, let's just go play soccer. Like you just kind of like figure out whatever else it is. The kids are eating the paste from the crafts or they're starting to get crazy. It's like, all right, soccer time. So I took four years of Spanish. I tested my competency in Spanish through about the third year. So I don't, I'm, I have academic awareness of Spanish and I was doing literal translations and stuff. So what I, what I try to say to a bunch of crazy kids is, hey, um, you guys, let's go, uh, let's go play soccer. Uh, uh, let's, go to, let's, go to the, let's go to the field where farmers farm. That's basically what I said. Let's go over to the farming field. That's basically how I said it. 
Because the word field in English and the word field, like the, a field where you farm and a field where you play soccer are the same in English, but they're not the same in Spanish. So some of you who speak Spanish know what I'm talking about. So I, I say this phrase, vamonos al campo. And all the kids look at me like, uh, we're going to run to the farming field. That doesn't sound like fun, which there's no farming field around. We're like in this kind of urban area. And then everybody, st- and then one kid whispers to another kid and they start cracking up. Like, it's like pretty fun. And I, and I go, I go what, what happened? What'd I say? And, and then this kid just, in, the, in the, his best impression of my voice, speaking Spanish, which was already, the words were already, you know, not accurate. He goes, Bominus al campo. <laughs> like as if I had learned my Spanish from the lifeguard at San Clemente Pier, you know, like, <laughs> okay, everybody. Hola, me amo, Jeff. Donde está la biblioteca? You know, like, this is, that's how they're talking back to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. I have an accent. I've taken four years of Spanish, and I sound like an idiot. I mean, this is just how, it felt so ridiculous. Now, if you fast forward a little bit into my life, Saturday, Saturday Night Live runs a sketch called The Californians. See if you notice the similarities here. Check this out. We got a little clip. I brought us some tangerines. This guy was selling them on the off ramp every ride too. That's what I sound like, evidently, when I'm talking. I did not realize I sound like that, but that's pretty close. Now, that sketch, all this, all of that incredibly bizarre distraction and talking about my accent, which I didn't realize I had. Some of you also have it. Is that I wanted to get to this one line. You know what they say over and over again in that sketch is what? Those of you who have seen it before. Let's try and say it. Someone's thinking about it. What are you doing here? They always say it like they stretch it out. What are you doing here? Like... What are you doing here, right? That's the line they always come back to, right? And that's the only reason why I told you all that is to get to that question, is what are you doing here? Now, when you, I know, it was really fun, right? Was that not the best ever? Yeah, I know, I know. It's just, thank you. Wow, never in my life have I had that moment. Let's just close in prayer. That was about as good as it's going to get today. But there's this whole question, whenever anybody asks the question, what are you doing here? They're really saying Someone doesn't belong, and in most every way that it ever gets asked, it's almost never, like, pleasant. It's never, like, I mean, very rarely is it like, what are you doing here, man? Like, there's, there's a little bit of that, but most of the time, there's an undertone when someone says, what are you doing here, that has something to do with isolating and exiling and ostracizing. 
In other words, there's a heart of the asker who says, what are you doing here? Whatever the shape or form that question takes, which says, you don't fit. There's a place for you, but it's not here. And it is a question that comes up all the time in Jesus' ministry. It's a question that actually comes up in some ways throughout the Bible. And I want to recap a story that many of you have heard before. It's in John chapter 4. It's about Jesus and this woman at a well. And I want to get actually to the moment that happens after it. But I want to kind of catch you up for those of you guys who aren't familiar with the story. Here's kind of what happens. Jesus is walking. He's covering a lot of ground. And he and his disciples can either go through this place called Samaria, which no Jews ever walk through. Samaria is a place, we'll talk more about this next week. But this is a place where um, people who are basically regarded as traitors live. These are people who, when the Assyrians came in in uh, 722, the Assyrians took over everybody and took a bunch of people back to their land. And they also occupied the land. And those people who stayed, who didn't run away, those people intermarried with the, 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 you know, the Assyrians. And those people became just sort of half-breed traitors. And so generations later, as they're now at, with Jesus' time, they're looking at these people like, you are traitorous people and we don't like you. You are the people that we go, what are you doing here if you're ever with us? So Jesus is walking through Samaria. He stops by a well at noon. So everybody, you know, everybody gets their water before the sun's really out, before nine. And there's Jesus encounters a woman. He's there, he's tired, he's been walking a long way, and he's by himself, and he sits down at the well, and a woman comes up. Now the only reason a woman comes to a well in the heat of the day in the Middle East is if she's exiled by everybody else. Because she's a person, unlike all the other women, most likely who would have done this chore for their families, they would come out earlier in the day, but she's either been unwelcomed or doesn't want to be seen by these people who shame her and make her feel terrible because she's got a history, we find out in the story. She's kind of got this shameful attachment. She's got this weird, not flattering story for her life that Jesus exposes in a real tender way. But she's out there by herself. Now you have this woman who's basically being told no one wants you. There's Jesus, a man, speaking with a woman in the ancient Aries, which never happens. You have Jesus, a Jew, speaking with a Samaritan, which never happens at this time. And he's by himself, which should never be happening at all. And Jesus then kind of reveals through a series of conversations and stuff, he starts saying, you know, he kind of reveals who he is. And she goes, you might be God's chosen person, the one everybody's been talking about is going to come, this person called the Messiah. And then his disciples return. Notice their reaction. Then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. There's sort of already this first level of surprise. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Here's what, here's what I want you to catch. First of all, the disciples see Jesus with a woman at a well in Samaria. And they, the writer John says, the disciples don't ask the question that everybody in the audience would have wondered. In other words, there's some restraint that they're showing, but the early audience of this particular story would have gone, why is this Jesus person hanging out there, and why is he with a woman? So he highlights, but no one asks, what do you want? I think that's a question probably that they would have wanted to ask the woman. What do you want? And to Jesus, they would have said, why are you talking with her? What he's saying, what the writer is saying, or John is saying, The disciples, like us, don't ask the question which we all wonder, which is, what are you doing here? Jesus, what are you doing here with this woman? And to the woman, why do you you talk to him? This isn't where you're not supposed to be here because there's supposed to be some other place that you are because you're not supposed to be here. What are you doing here? God has a history throughout the Bible of being with people in some surprising and unlikely ways. And I would say God has a bias for the exiles and for the lonely. 
he seems to continue to move towards the outsiders in a way that's incredibly surprising to his own people. And it's in that kind of looking through that lens where we get a really important question, which is this. What does God do with those who don't belong? What does God do with those people? Maybe you even feel like that yourself. You came in today, you're not sure about the church, you're not sure. You know, all of a sudden there's this bizarre intro to the message and you're like, what am I doing here? But the question you wonder is, if you don't feel like you're connected is, what does God do with people who don't belong? Because the answer to that question has so much to do with this whole idea of loving where we live. I mean, in fact, I would think this is probably the most critical question to what do we do when it means to love where we live. What does God do with those who don't belong? What does he do with those who don't belong? You know, as, as we walk through this, I just want to give you a sense too. We're going to, this is going to be a little bit of like Bible jujitsu, so you're going to have to stay with me. It's going to get a little bit like, what did we just do? You know what I mean? Because this is like a jujitsu guy right here. So if I jumped out and tried to kick you in the head, could you stop me? I'm not going to because I know what happened. But it's going to be like that, all right? So like, it's going to be a little bizarre. You're going to be like, where are we going? Again, I promise, much like the super clever intro, which works so nicely, I will land this plane. Some of you are going to be like, we're circling the runway. We're running out of gas. We're out of peanuts. We're out of, what are we going to do? We're going to die. You won't die. Trust me. I'm, I'll, t- I'll land the plane, okay? But you got to trust me, all right? We're going to go a little crazy. All right, now, here's what's happening. God has this bias for these people who are in exile, these outsiders. Start with his own people. These are people called the Israelites. These are people who are being held captive for 400 some years in Egypt, being slaves. God notices his people. He says this. The Lord said, he's speaking to Moses here. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, that sounds great. Moses hears this. This is, the, this, this is actually, if you've ever heard of the burning bush, this is where God's speaking to Moses in that moment. And Moses is like, well, that's great. God's, God has recognized that we're suffering. We're in exile and lonely. God has seen our suffering, and he's going to do something about it. So what's he going to do? Because that's the question. Great, God, we, this is the most powerful army, the, most, the richest people in all the world. They have us captive, and you're saying you're going, you've seen our suffering, and you're going to do something about it. What's your, what's your plan? What do you want to do? Here's what God wants to do. That's his plan, verse 12, Exodus 3, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. That's the plan. That's the whole, that's, that's it. That's what we get. And I will be with you. That's all you got. Because what does that mean? I mean, this is kind of a, this is like, there's no strategy really laid out. You get a little bit more as you kind of read on the, but it's not totally clear exactly how a burning bush intends to be with everybody, right? Because that's what's happening here. See, there's these people who are suffering, these exiles who are lonely. And there is then after God begins to reveal his, the way he's going to do this, freeing his people. He's going to bring about famously these plagues upon the Egyptians. There's going to be crops that die. There's going to be water sources that are overrun. They're turned to blood. You're going to have gnats and fly, you know, flies and frogs. You're going to have all these crazy things happen. Ultimately to drive the Pharaoh to say, all right, I can't handle these people. Their God is driving me nuts. They can leave. And so as they leave, they walk out. Millions of people in a military formation, sort of lines of people walk out. God's intention to be with them becomes a little bit clearer. Here's what happens. By day, this is the people walking out, they're, you know, they're walking out of Egypt. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light, so they could travel by day or by night, and neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So 
God's walking the people out. There's kind of an element of protection and guidance here. When the Egyptian army kind of changes their mind, the Pharaoh changes his mind like, you know what, I kind of like having those slaves. Let's go get those people back. Then the army starts charging after what happens when the people are like resting or whatever. This pillar of fire is like blocking the Egyptian army. So there's this, there's this miraculous kind of presence with the people that's in front of them, that's guiding them, has this kind of protective element to it. And he never left this place in front of the people. But as God's moving on, as his people are getting closer and closer to the next phase of their journey, as they're approaching this land that God keeps promising them they're going to come into, the nature of God's relationship begins to morph a little bit. Check out what happens in Exodus 29. Talking about this tent called the tabernacle. Maybe you've heard that word before. This is like a mobile worship center. God's people walk around. They set up their worship center, and then God blesses it. Here's what he says. There I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. Now, we're going to come back to this, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to say the word glory on the count of three. And some of you will say it like this, glory, like you haven't had your coffee. You just say it with a little bit more energy, okay? You with me? Okay, so the word is glory. It's not hard. Here we go. One, two, three. Glory. Oh, that's good. Okay, now listen. God's glorious presence is among his people. You got that pillar of fire. You got the pillar of smoke, which is, you know, our pillar of cloud in the day. And these people are walking around. There's this mobile worship center now that God is consecrating by his glory. Then he says this about the people that will serve there. He says, so I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. There's going to be special people. You know, they're going to take care of stuff called the Levites. Then he says this. Then I will dwell among the Israelites. Okay, so you've said the word glory. Say glory on three. One, two, three. Glory. Good. Now say the word dwell on three. One, two, three. Dwell. Dwell. Perfect. Some of you said it faster than others. Some of you wanted it to be like, like when our little, my little girl's like her soccer team does a cheer they stretch it out so we just played the uh, minions the other day it was minions on three minions guys teams just go minions okay so some of you guys said that was like dwell some of you guys were dwell okay somewhere in the middle try it again one two three perfect okay now listen God's glory is consecrating stuff, whatever that means which means to make holy we'll get to that and then he says I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God now I have dwell is a word that means to set up camp to live among, to encamp oneself, and I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might. Okay, room one was on top of it, guys. Stay with me, okay? They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might. Yes! Among them, I am the Lord, their God. Okay, now, there is a phrase that begins to sort of give shape to this God's glorious presence among the people that's later, that's later read into the text from later Judaism. You've probably heard it before. It's a word that describes God who is glorious in everything, however he is doing his stuff, whatever God's glory looks like, but that it's up close. Perhaps you've heard of this word. It's, um, it's this word right here. Shekinah, or as you might have heard it, Shekinah, right? It just means this. The divine presence, the numinous eminence of God in the world. This comes from a Jewish dictionary. Now, some of you are like, I know what divine presence might mean, but I don't know what numinous eminence is. It just means divine closeness of God. So here's God's intention. Remember, just to retrace. God's people are in exile. They're suffering at the hands of these these people who really don't have any respect for them whatsoever. God moves in front of them with these plagues and then moves moves in front of them with with this pillar of smoke and this pillar of fire, saying he's going to be with his people. And then he says, I'm going to dwell with them. My glory will consecrate, but I will dwell among them up close. Shekinah or Shekinah. 
God's glorious presence will be up close with his people. You see, there's this glorious dwelling of God among his people. It begins to take shape here. And what happens, you know, this is kind of a really unique thing in the ancient Near East. Because what happens in most religious systems is that people are constantly trying to figure out how to build a ladder, generally of religious practice, to God, to their God. And what God says is, I'm making a way to be among you. Right now, you. However you are, I'm going to be with you. You see, people are constantly, when they move through, you see these nomadic people in the ancient world who are moving through. And what would happen often, all the way even through the time of Jesus, people would move through a land and they would say, what kind of gods are here and who should we make sacrifices to so that we can appease them, that we can put them in our back pocket, that we can make them kind of not angry with us. And what you see with the God of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, is that God already chose them and is moving to them and has an intention to dwell among them. You see, there's this other thing that starts to happen, though. Because what happens right around the time of Jesus is people start going, well, you know, clearly God would want to be with us because we're his people, but not with all of us. Because some of us, you know, we know some of us, and they got a story. And so people start defining in pretty clear terms who gets to be the us and who gets to be the not us. God came for us, but not them. We know them. They have a story. They've done some things they regret. We all know about it. Shame on them. Good for us. And all the shameful things I've done, I'll just bury it so nobody else can hear about it. God's glorious presence, his rescuing presence is for some people, we believe, but not for others. Because there's some really horrible folks. And we're not them. So it must be us, but not them. Now, God is dwelling among his people in this person. Now this, this sort of, this, this whole question starts to form with which, which kind of people, if we could imagine God coming down and being with us, with which kind of people would he associate? Who is he really coming for? What's his purpose here? What's he actually doing? And you see as we move forward, even into the person of Jesus, here's what happens. The word, meaning it's another term just describing God. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his Glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's this person embodying all that God is. The glory and the dwelling of God, God's numinous eminence, is in this person of Jesus. And he's walking among us. Who's us? I think for me, I should just speak for me for a moment. Part of the reason, well, I should say this first. Part of the reason why Jesus is so confusing to people is because his version of us is generally bigger than the people want it to be who are anticipating his arrival. He's including people that nobody else would have ever included. Um, Particularly among the religious community, it's like, wait a second, you're including them? I thought it was just about us. No, 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 not you. You guys have got it all wrong. You think you don't need me. But he says to the people who really need him, I'm with them. Now, I have to say, maybe you connect with this idea. I'm a person who likes having pretty tight little boundaries around stuff for me. You know, I like being, I'm a little uncomfortable and people are kind of, I I feel like part of what I get to do is I have worked hard to build a shelter for myself in so many different ways. I mean, a shelter like an actual house. I mean, I live in a house and I don't want people to mess with it. I don't want people in it all the time. I have have three kids. We can barely, you know, we have a dog that gets sick sometimes. It's like, well, I don't want anybody else in this place. And I wonder for part, there's a little bit of me that goes, I wonder if what would happen, and maybe, maybe it's just because I'm embarrassed, 
But I don't want those people who are, aren't me to be around me. I want people that are like me, or at least can tolerate me. I want those people around me. And then there's Jesus who's, he sort of gives this dwelling of glory a face. Now all this, the pillar of smoke and fire that seem to have this kind of, well, that's really wonderful, God's there. And then there's this, this God dwelling among us, but the glory he's now here has a face. Well, who, who does God take up residence with? Who's he hanging out with? Oh, sorry. This is the continuation of part of that quote about Shekinah. The divine presence, the numinous eminence of God in the world, this is again speaking about God's divinity among us, a revelation of the holy in the midst of the profane. You see, what happens is most of the time people thought that God would come and show up among the holy. That if God's going to show up at all in any kind of capacity, it's going to be among the holy people. Only what you have here is God's showing up as the holy one in the midst of the profane, the decidedly unholy. Holy. That means the us that Jesus is, that he's among, are the people who are profane, not the people who are to- completely holy. It's the people who have their brokenness, their acts maybe together, but everything else is kind of in shambles. Jesus' disciples asked the question about him and this woman he's having this conversation with, but what are you doing here? Jesus, what are you doing here? Because you're not... You're talking with a woman, she's Samaritan, and you, we, have, we don't do that. But in essence, they're asking the woman, what are you doing here? Why are you talking to our guy? Because you're not one of us. The woman has a story to tell. I guess the question sort of is, where does God dwell? God dwells at a place like a watering hole, a well, with a woman who's unwanted from a group of people who are unwanted. She's the unwanted of the unwanteds. Here's what happens. John 4, 28. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This person who's supposed to rescue everybody. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now remember, this is a woman who is all by herself, who everybody says, we don't want you. Go away. Stay away from us. You have a reputation. We don't want you around us. You have to go to the well by yourself because you've had four husbands. You live with another guy right now. And it's just like, you know. We don't, you got, you're kind of bringing shame on us, so get away from us. This is what she gets. She runs back to the town and says, you guys, something's happened. Jesus, this person, God's presence has come among us. The people who are unwanted, the exiles of the exiles, he has come to be among us. Maybe something's different, skipping ahead a little bit. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, meaning he told me everything I did, continuing on. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Let me stop right there for just a moment. What Jesus does is dwell with the exiles. He lives for two days with the people who have disgusting customs, whose own food is unclean because they've touched it with their own hands, whose houses are poisoned by their very presence. This is, the particular, this is the view of the people in the ancient world, of the Jews, of the Samaritans. Jesus and his disciples, we, you know, lots of research says the disciples were a lot younger than we previously kind of knew. So it'd be like high school age folks, early college, maybe. Going to, in other words, just be like, you're, my mom's going to kill me that I was in the house of a Samaritan for two days, eating that food and their customs and being around them these people have these weird beliefs about stuff that's not ours we can't do that and jesus dwells 
among the exiles, among the forgotten, among the outsiders, among the ones who are called disgusting by the other people. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now, I want you to catch this. Obviously, Jesus is the most gifted teacher ever. But I wonder if they hear his words if he's not living in their midst for two days. There's something about Jesus who's walking towards people who are the outsiders, who are alone, who've experienced the scourge of loneliness, who've experienced what it looks like to be one of the them and not the us. And Jesus begins to raise the question throughout his ministry, who's them and who is us? Because all the people who believe that they're us, Jesus keeps saying, you know what, you guys are missing the point. I came here for people who really are in need, and you keep thinking you don't need anything. You see, God's mission is pretty clear. To draw people who have been told by society or by their own religious community that they do not have a place. He keeps drawing them into himself. And all of the people around Jesus keep going, do you realize who you're associating with? And he keeps going, yeah. In fact, I think you can make a strong case that the, the, the earthly reason why people have killed Jesus, why he was so infuriating to people is because he kept associating with people that were the them and not the us. Jesus keeps saying by doing this, we're all them or we're all us. The early church began to wrestle with what this looked like. What does it mean that there's like, what does it mean that Jesus came and walked among us? What does that look like? Here's the Apostle Paul writes this in his letter to the Galatians. He says this in Galatians 2.20, famous verse. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Meaning my old life is gone. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself or gave himself for me. Now here's what I want you to catch. Christ lives in me. Where does God dwell? He dwells among the exiles and the outsiders, the people who really, really need help, the people who have been lost and hurt and wounded. That's us. Not because we have everything figured out, not because we got everything, we we say the right things or we go to church in the right way or we kind of keep our lawn mowed and our kids are moderately well-behaved in public or because we keep our our cool in public at home, we might blow our top, but at home, it's not because of that stuff. It's not because we kind of put the the air of getting everything together. God chose us because he loves to be with us. We are the exiles. We're the ones that we go, I wonder, you know, you have this whole story here. God's glory, his presence among his people, his glorious dwelling presence has a face in Jesus and Jesus through this mysterious thing called the Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit, he dwells inside of us and begins this transformation of us. I know it's bizarre. The, 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 the Christian Tencent word, the Christianese word for what that is, is what's called sanctification. That God begins to do something in us. The exiles, the lonely, the lost, the forgotten. Many of you in this room, oops, many of you in this room, sorry as I'm backing up, many of you in this room have the experience of being a lost and lonely exile. You have felt the sting of isolation, you have felt the, the pain of loneliness, and you wonder Is there anyone who might love me, who might receive me? Jesus keeps saying, I want to move toward you. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God. He's talking about the transformation of Jesus, 
who reconciled us to himself, which means made us right with God, through Christ and gave us this thing right here, the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, people who belong to Jesus are granted a job immediately because the degree keeps getting, <laughs> keeps getting more and more challenging. Starts out with God's among us. That's great. He's with us. That's so cool. I'm a person he might want to be around. That's great. And then there's this additional little thing. God dwells inside of us. And then there's this ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? Here's what it says. That God, this, here's the ministry, that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation, which means we have a story. People who were once exiled, what the ex-exiles know, is that they have an experience of being someone who is on the outside who has been brought on the inside. It means the best people to tell the story about God's love are people who have experienced the loneliness of being on the outside. God says, you were once far from me, but I brought you close to me. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, what God intends to do in the world, for whatever reason, he's going to utilize us. We get this title, ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors. We're talking just even, you know, some folks about what that might look like. There's a new relationship between people who follow Jesus and Jesus, which means they have to love where they live. But there's people there who are exiled, people who are, the people that drive us crazy, the people that get in our way, the people that ruin our day, those people that annoy us, those people that we, for whom we have built a shelter, we have locks on our doors, not because they're unsafe, but because they're just annoying. And Jesus occupies our life, begins to transform us and starts saying, guess what? You get to carry this message forward. And a lot of times I think Christians don't really know what we're supposed to do with that. People who follow Jesus are like, what are we supposed to do with that? Because we only have in our head the extreme version of that, which is pretty much like someone who lives on their own planet. I mean, they just have this kind of bizarre world where it's like, you know, we talked about this last week, like, you know, trick-or-treaters are going to get Bibles this year, you know? Trick-or-treat, and here's the Gospel of John. That will be sweet to your soul. But I'm really hungry you know what, you might be hungry, but this will never leave you hungry. I mean, just like, okay, come on. You get those people who are like, I'm not sure, is that what I'm supposed to do? Because I, you know, I believe in Jesus and what I'm supposed to do. On the other end of the spectrum, you get the, I don't know, I guess I just sort of hide out because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The word ambassador does help us a little bit. We're Christ's ambassadors. It does help us a little bit. I mean, think about what an ambassador does. Now, I mean, and all of us don't know exactly what their day-to-day -day work is, but you have someone from a particular country who represents that country in another country of different customs, of different practices, of different cultural norms. And their job is to represent the best of the sending country for the receiving country. And that person knows how to operate with skill in such a way that they're able to hold on to the critical transformation that God has done in their life without neglecting the customs and the, and the ways and the, of the people and caring about them. That's an ambassador. That's what we get to be. That is what we are charged with. And it is with those people who are otherwise exiled. I, um, you know, we talked, like, last week we talked about taking, you know, you guys filled out those cards, some of you guys in on the, on the outline trying to get our database all squared away, which I know is incredibly exciting and thrilling for you to do. But here's what we found out. We asked on some of the stuff, we asked, hey, what are some of the things you're dealing with? Or what are some of the things you need? You can see it's still on that card. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cards that came back. And let me just tell you some of the themes on these cards. These are people in our own church. 
I have a, I'm estranged in my marriage. I'm looking for a job. We know now statistics will tell us that if a guy, I don't know if it's true for women, I don't know the statistics on this, but we know that men who look for a job for more than six months start spiraling into depression. There are people who are talking about their own brokenness, their addiction, their loss of connectedness, their loneliness that they experience, and that's in the church. We are a collection of exiled people. And Jesus is sending this broken group of people who may have some kind, something about Jesus that's doing something in their life. He sends those people, those broken people, into the world. Humbly and courageously, he moves these people. And he, there's this question we started with. What does God do with those who don't belong? What does God do with those people who don't belong? He sends us. He sends us. I talked to a guy this week, a friend of mine, just anonymously, I talked to a guy, he's a businessman. Now, if you had to pick someone who's an, the, the enemy of a businessman, you're probably your most likely candidate is the IRS. <laughs> so he texted me, he said, I had, a, I had a meeting with an IRS agent, and you know, it's some stuff we had to kind of take care of, and the meeting went well, and you just kind of imagine these are two people who are kind of on opposite ends of the table. So we have this conversation at the, after everything kind of gets, you know, settled, we're working through some stuff. And he just goes, how's everything else going in your life? Which I'm sure business people do not take time for IRS agents to ask them about the rest of their life. Woman starts getting teary-eyed, talking about the brokenness in her family, about a son that's kind of gone a direction she would not have wished for him. There's this loneliness and this panic and this fear in this woman who's going, I don't tell anybody this stuff. And there's the tenderness of a man who says, what else is going on? That's being an ambassador. It's not a guy who has everything perfect, not everything's together in his life, but he just goes, I think I'm kind of supposed to do this. There's a um, story I heard this week, great story from someone in our community. They're going to get their mail, one of those big, you know, sort of corporate mailboxes where there's like 400 different mailboxes, you know, and you got to get your, you got to get your mail and everybody else is there and you're, it's always awkward when you're with someone else, like, do I look at them, do I not, are we, I'm not, I'm not trying to look at your mail, whoa, uh, you know, but, but you have that kind of moment. <clears throat> she says, she, she pulls her mail out and she notices that there's a, a piece of mail on the floor that came from someone else on the ground. So she, she, she walks past it and then goes, ah, okay, because this is a person who's incredibly shy. There's a person who is like, you know, not like this is, this is wonderful she's just not super like i'm all in people's face i love this so she goes back picks up the mail and decides now i got to go knock on someone's door who's a stranger i got to look at their address and go knock on their door and the way she basically describes it this is like my own version of the story but the way she basically describes it it was basically like a ding dong ditch like I have your mail okay they weren't there that's too bad i tried god i tried to put me here for a purpose and i did what i, I know i tried and i was I trying to be an ambassador or whatever and, and that was it but she goes, okay, so she tries a couple more times. The person's not answering. She looks down, at the, realizes she's looking at this piece of mail. It's, it's clear from, without opening it, obviously. She goes, this is a bill. This is horrible news. What, who wants to deliver this? So she decides she's going to make some kind of cinnamon roll or like some kind of special cinnamon roll thing, a big batch of them to like soften the blow of the bill. Is this not the best? So she bakes this huge thing of like cinnamon rolls and then takes the bill over there, knocks on the door. It turns out this, this, the woman lives there as a single mom. And Becca starts talking to her and saying, what's going on? And they get a little conversation. I have some kids. And they just start having this conversation. And if you, those of you who are single parents, 
I know how much of what you feel is a sort of an exiling kind of experience for you. And now there's a woman who says, hey, I just thought you might need this. I know that this bill is not fun, but hopefully this is. That's loving where you live. Um, talked to another guy this week who said, I, start, I wanted, he goes, I wanted to initiate a little bit more of a conversation than just sort of the hey as I'm driving out of the parking lot and a little less of the like as we're pulling our trash out like, you know, hey man, how's it going? Nice robe and slippers. It's not weird at all. And then, you know, that kind of like, Whatever that is, he wanted to push it a little bit more, you know, like a little bit more familiar. So he starts, to, he starts taking his neighborhood really seriously. One of his neighbors is a guy who has got some real, like, antagonism toward the church. He's just not real excited about church. You know, it's like he, he likes Jesus, not real sure about his fan club, one of those guys, you know. And so he's like, not even, he's actually not even sure about Jesus. And so they start a conversation, just kind of initiating a little bit. Guy hits a little bit of a rough patch in his marriage. First person he turns to is a person who showed him just a little bit of kindness. A person who's already antagonistic to the church is shown some kindness by someone from the church. First person he contacts. I don't know what to do. That's loving where you live. That's what it means to live with Christ in you as an ambassador in the world. I talked to some people at the door um, as they're walking out. They just, they just were saying, you know what, we've been struggling. We're trying to sell our house for so long. We're not sure what we're supposed to do. We're trying to sell our house. And she goes, I looked on Zillow. Our house is nicer than everybody else's house, and it's a fair price. I don't know what's happening. She goes, and you are ruining everything, Jeff. And I go, what do I do? I mean, I'm just, what do I? she goes, I don't think we're supposed to sell our house. I think we're, we've been living here for 19 years. We got our kids here, and I think God's saying, you get to stay here, and you got to love where you live. That's a courageous person who says, okay, I'm taking this whole thing pretty seriously. You guys, there is something with which we've got to connect with, which is this idea. For those of you who follow Jesus, and none of us do that perfectly. None of us has it all together. Every one of us is a broken person in this room. People who are walking with Jesus are just people who are broken who recognize they needed Jesus. That's all that that is. I talk to someone at the door. Every, every week I talk to someone at the door who says, can you talk to me for a second? And they start crying and they always apologize. And I always go, you don't have to apologize for that. We're a, we're a room full of people who are trying piece our lives back together with the help of God and this community of people. Now, what God's saying to us, you who follow Jesus, you have this burden upon you, which is to go to those people who are in exile, who are outsiders, and to be present, to dwell among them. That is a courageous, messy, difficult charge, and it is the way that Christ gave to us. That's how you love where you live. Let's pray together. Father, I know there's people in this room who have experienced a very real sense of the loneliness and sting and pain of what it means to be by themselves. They felt the exiling power of people who have said, you don't belong here, who have asked us in so many words, what are you doing here? Jesus, would you meet us who feel that in a very real way this week, even just right now? Lord, I know there are people in this room who need to come forward to be prayed for, specifically with some of our prayer team, to write a prayer maybe in the prayer wall, to place it there that they might be prayed for this week because they felt that loneliness. Jesus says, we respond. We have a reason to celebrate. 
as we sing a few songs, as we put our own prayers to music, essentially, we have a reason to celebrate because you have come to people like us. Not because we were wonderful, not because we proved ourselves worthy, but because you loved us and you chose to dwell in us. You, God, walk among us. The very presence of God dwells in us. And so we get to sing as people who walk with Jesus, who walk with you. Father, would you hear our prayer as we set it to music, as we sing together, as we pray together? It's in your name, Jesus, the one who comes for the exiles, the lost and the lonely, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing and respond together, Jesus.